Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is founder of Skyline Artists Agency and the music blog Hypebot, Bruce Houghton. First of all, Spotify is losing favor on Wall Street. Its stock price and market cap is down by 41% since July of 2018, just not doing well. And a lot of people think it's because there's a lot more competition than ever before from Apple Music and now Amazon Music, because Amazon Music is coming on really strongly. But one of the big problems is the fact that Unlike both of those companies, Spotify doesn't have any hardware that it sells. Hardware usually has big margins, unlike online services. Well, there's another problem with Spotify, and that's the fact that it discounts heavily in emerging markets. Just to give you an example, in the United States, we're paying $9.99 a month for premium Spotify. But in India, for the exact same account, they pay $1.70. In the Philippines, they pay $2.93, or the equivalent of $2.93. In Taiwan, it's $4.95. In Mexico, it's about $5. In Hong Kong, it's $6.19. So when we look at what the income is, the per capita income in all these countries, we find out that the United States is very high, of course, at about 62.6 thousand. Brazil, though, on the other hand, is only a little under 9,000. And India is just a little above $2,000 per person per year. So when you look at this, you think, well, the market probably can't bear that much. But then there's the argument. A BMW is the same price no matter what country you go to. An iPhone is the same price or more, regardless of the country that you go to. But we're talking about a commodity when we're talking about music. And it's not only Spotify that has this problem. It's Apple Music and it's Amazon and it's YouTube trying to sell their services as well, where you have these really, really cheap monthly subscription prices in emerging countries because they just can't afford to pay more. So all this really hurts Spotify's bottom line. And as I've said many times before, the biggest problem here is with Amazon and with Apple, music is just kind of a rounding error to them. They have really deep pockets, and if music goes away or does poorly, doesn't matter. But music is the primary business of Spotify, so it can't go away or else the company goes away. All this means that at some point in time, we're going to see Spotify being bought. Who buys it and for how much is going to be the real question. But I would say begin to look for something like this to happen in the next year, especially if the stock price does not get any better than it is now. If you have any questions or comments, Send in the questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's something that you probably don't want to hear if you're an engineer or producer. The Music Producers Guild in the United Kingdom 
did a survey, and boy, they found out some very disturbing statistics. Engineers and producers work for free a whole lot. So the first thing was 88% of producers and engineers were asked to undertake unpaid work in the last three years. 71% of them agreed to do so. So that means 71% of producers and sound engineers did some work for nothing. That being said, about 50% of them took some unpaid work as a real favor for a friend. And of course, we all do that. You do a favor for a friend, you're not going to take money from them. But about 20% of those felt like they were under pressure from their clients that they had to do a favor for free or else they might lose the client. 42% of unpaid workers said they'd taken on work on the understanding that they would receive payment if their client liked the work. And this is pretty bad. First of all, it's bad enough when you do it on spec, meaning I'm going to do all this work and when you get paid, then I get paid. Because that rarely happens, as we all know. But it's even worse when you do it for free and you pay me if you like it. Usually that doesn't happen either. So if that ever comes up, you should go into it. If you need credits, for instance, that's okay. When you're first starting, I understand that. But go in not expecting to make any money out of it. Because if you do, that's just a bonus. Now, 77% of respondents claim that they've been asked to work for free for self-funded artists. Again, I get that. Not a problem. 34%, though, were asked to work for free for an indie label. For an indie label that's making some money, and there are some large indie labels, that's not fair at all. And it's even worse. 17% were asked to work for free for a major label. Major labels make tons of money. They can afford to pay. Now, again, if you're doing it because you're an entry-level engineer producer and you're just looking for credits, I get it. But if you're expecting to get money later because you're doing this, again, usually it doesn't work out. Now, what they found was that, that the average engineer, the average producer, was doing about $5,000 worth of free work per year, but there were some that were doing as much as $50,000. Now, obviously, they're in the high price tier if they can afford to do that. But you know what? If you're working for months and months and not making any money, and I've done that, so believe me <laughs> when I say I feel your pain if you're doing that, but again, it's not fair. So speaking of that, 41% of respondents said that the work they did took up less than a week per year. Okay, I get that. You work for less than a week and you think, well, all right, it's not that long. I can afford to do that. However, about 5% said it took at least a month to do all this free work. And then 5% said it took up almost all their time. Once again, makes sense if you're just trying to get into the business and you need credits. But Wow, it really hurts if you have to do that and you're expecting money. So this is the UK. And in England, of course, everything's a little bit different than it is here. I don't think it's hugely different, however, because there's a lot of people that are working for nothing or near nothing, partially because they just want to work. Another part of it is the fact that they need the credits. Yep. Another part is they're hoping that it means more money down the line. Well, keep your fingers crossed on that. It usually doesn't happen. 
My guest today is Bruce Houghton, who started his boutique Skyline Artist Agency more than 25 years ago. The agency now has offices in Los Angeles, Nashville, New England, Virginia, Florida, and St. Louis, and serves 60 diverse artists that include Roger McGuinn, Poco, Atlanta Rhythm Section, The Love and Spoonful, The Smithereens, The Motels, Zoe Keating, Darling Side, and March 4th. Bruce is also founder and editor of the influential music blog HypeBot, which was recently acquired by the gig recommendation service Bands in Town, where he serves as a senior advisor. During the interview, we spoke about what an agent looks for when taking on an artist, the strategy behind booking talent, the best place online to build an audience quickly, the Bands in Town artist toolkit, and much more. I spoke with Bruce via phone from his office in Roanoke, Virginia. How did you get into the business originally? Um, I was a student at Boston University in journalism and did an internship at uh, A&M Records. In those days, every major record label had uh, a branch office in every big city. And so I, uh, I got a, you know, I think it was $50 a month <laughs> <laughs> internship at A&M Records and then worked there for a little while doing radio promotion and, and one thing led to another. Okay, so where did Skyline Music come in? That must have been down the road a bit. Yeah, not that far. I mean, I did it after that. I booked, let's see, for a little while, I sold record advertising for the Boston Phoenix, which was like the village voice of Boston. And then I was booking a club in Boston called The Rat, which was like the CBGBs of Boston. I, you know, I booked the police for 300 a night for three nights and Blondie and the Ramones and all kind, the cars, all kinds of bands. Uh, and out of that came a job at a, a regional agency. Um, and then I opened my own regional agency uh, called Skyline. And one day when I was honestly just about to quit because I'd sort of had enough, the band Foghat, um, or their current iteration of the band at the time, kind of walked through the door and said, we need an agent. Do you want to be our agent? So I quickly learned how to book nationally, and, and one thing led to another. That was 30 years ago. Wow. That's pretty awesome, actually. It, you know, it's your typical Hollywood story. <laughs> it, it's, I, it's absolutely a case of perseverance. You know, I, I, I'm a believer that if you put yourself out there every day, um, and work hard, decent things happen. I mean, not always amazing things, but at least decent things. I mean, I, honestly, I don't, I don't consider myself all that incredibly intelligent or all that incredibly special at anything, except that I go to work every day and I work hard. And, and over time that has a cumulative effect. So it's, it's certainly been good to me. So you said that you were doing regional and then you had to learn how to do national. So what was the difference? What was the learning curve? Well, it's, I mean, it's basically knowing who to call. And so as a regional agent in New England, I would book regional bands throughout New England, you know, five days as a cover band on Cape Cod or whatever it is. Um, by when I'm becoming a national agent, I had to, you know, know where to book all over the country. Now, in those days, there was no internet or not not appreciably in internet, not with, and Polestar, you know, the, the industry trade magazine, literally, if I remember correctly, was Xeroxed or, or something. It was sent out stapled together. So the first, so there was no directory, at least I didn't know of one of uh, national, you know, 
clubs that did national talent. And I actually paid an agent who knew what he was doing to book, help me book the first tour. Somebody worked for somebody else and then sort of took it from there. Fortunately, when you have the band Foghat, you, they'll take your call. So once I knew where to go, uh, they would at least talk to me because they'd heard of the band and, and one thing led to another, the outlaws and Blackfoot. And, you know, there were just Rick Danko from the band. I mean, over the years, there've been dozens of, of acts of that ilk with the agency and one just led to another, but it was a learning curve. It seems like you specialize in that type of act. I do personally. Um, the agency actually is much more diverse than that. Uh, about 20 years ago, um, one of one of my agents who's been with me that long, Mark Laurie, in a meeting said, you know, what's the point of doing this if we don't help young acts? And uh, and he's he's absolutely right. So he and and there's some others have spent a lot of their time, um, you know, developing acts. So we have, you know, a, a quite a quite a bit in the alternative and, and particularly Americana genre, young acts, acts, you know, in their 20s that have indie record deals, et cetera, et cetera. I spend most of my focus on the classic acts. Uh, it's just the specialty I've, I've developed. Are they harder to book? Well, it's different uh, entirely. I mean, in some ways they're harder because they're at a point in their lives where they want to make money. So, you know, it's, it is about playing the right venue and for the right audience, but you know, they want, they, if they don't get X amount of dollars, they're not going to get on a plane or in a bus or whatever. The developing acts, the younger acts, you know, have a, a longer view of their careers as they should. And so often they're much more about not about the money, but much more about finding them just the right opportunities. So there's pros and cons to each. There's one's not necessarily easier than another. Um, it's just about a mindset of the agent and understanding what the act wants and needs and coming to an understanding. If you and if the agent and the act and the manager and maybe the label, if there is one, are all in the same place about this is what our goals are and our goals are achievable, you know, given the nature of the marketplace, if you will, then it's, you know, it's just about going out and doing the work and occasionally getting lucky. I mean, this, this business is a lot more about luck than any, anyone likes to admit, in my opinion. I mean, you have to be ready for the luck and you have to work for the luck, but sometimes things just happen. Okay. Give me an example of the luck. I, and I guess Foghat might be one, right? Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, there was a guy, they had a manager or there was an old friend of mine who was a race car driver, you know, a record winning race car driver. And he had lent them some money and suddenly became their manager. So he, he said, I'm managing Foghat and I don't know what to do. And you're the only person I know in the music business. Now, because I had made, I had bought enough national talent, you know, as, as a club buyer. So in other words, I would call the big agencies, William Morris and whatever, and buy talent for uh, venues in New England, I knew enough people to ask a bunch of questions. You know, everybody's willing to be helpful a little bit in this business, ask a bunch of questions and find a way forward with that. But, you know, when I talk about luck for an artist, often, you know, like it, getting an artist the right opening act at the right moment in their career. And it's not often the biggest one. It's often much more effective for them to go out and let's say open for somebody who can sell 500 to 2000 seats than it is to open for somebody who can sell 10,000 seats because you know, that audience, that thousand seat audience is still interested in new music is still wanting to discover something. So anyway, if you can grab the right tour at the right moment for a band like that, it can be career changing. 
And some of it is the work that we as agents do, and some of it is the work that the managers do and the labels do to get them that. But quite frequently, it's because the headline band fell in love with the younger band. And that's, that's random often. It's like, I heard your song on the radio, and I love it. My friend played your new record for me and I love it. And then it's just our job to not mess it up, you know, to do the best deal that we can and to make it all run smoothly. But quite frequently it, it is that it's that random, you know, some, somebody falls in love with something. Somebody wants to give a band an opportunity. Same thing with getting on a big festival quite, you know, yes, you, you call and you argue and you sell, but quite frequently it becomes you know, my intern just played me this record and this band is awesome. Why didn't you tell me about them? Well, I have five times and you weren't listening and now you're ready to listen and book the band. So that that's the kind of luck I'm talking about. Now, every band that starts knows that they need to get in front of people, they need gigs, and the agent is the key. But that being said, there is plenty more acts than there are agents. You said that you actually have a number of younger bands on your roster what does it take for you to be interested? Yeah, for, for Skyline to be interested. Um, there, somebody in the, in the company has to be passionate about it, so they have to listen to it and, and really get it and be excited. Um, and then I'd say it's probably three things. One is we often look for something different. So in other words, what's going to, to differentiate you in the marketplace? So no offense, but the world does not necessarily need another guy in a guitar singing heartfelt songs. I mean, we always need some, but you know, how's that going to break through? So what is it about you? That's a little bit unique. Uh, somebody in the agency, as I said, has to get at least one person has to just be perfect, wonderfully excited about it because in the beginning, it's not about at all about money. It's about vision. Then we look for two other things. One is growth in multiple markets. And that could be, 50, you know, you call, we call four or five clubs and they say, yeah, first time, man, it was 40 people. Second time it was 75. And last time they did 120. And frankly, I think they're on their way to selling out my 300 seat venue in two or three more times. If they can do that in multiple markets, doesn't have to be thousands of tickets or whatever, but we can feel that growth in multiple markets, not just their home market, because, you know, they might have a big Italian family or a lot of friends from work, but in multiple markets, then that's a sign. And then last but not least, we're looking for some kind of a, a team and a plan. And that could be, sometimes it's just a super organized band, but usually it involves a manager or a label or, and it doesn't, again, have to be a big label, but just somebody, some kind of infrastructure so that we believe that we're not, you know, the only person in the boat rowing, that there are other people rowing the boat alongside us. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, let's talk about HypeBot. So how did that come about? Um, I, because I've been an agent for 30 years, uh, you know, like everything, I love doing what I do, but but I was looking for a little intellectual stimulation in some ways. And in that, and at the same time, Napster had happened and the industry was changing. And I realized that I needed to, I felt I needed to understand these changes so that I could explain them to the acts that we represented. And, uh, you know, whether they were older acts or managers, it was just everything was happening so quickly. So I started to research and I started to take notes. It's just kind of the way my brain works. And I, at the same time, there was this revolutionary thing called blogging was happening. So I thought, let me combine my notes and start throwing them out there. And one thing kind of led to another. Basically, at the time, anyway, there were nobody or very few people were writing about 
music and tech, modern music marketing, what, what I sort of generally call the music, uh, new music industry, or you call music 3.0, you know, the next step in the industry. Um, and, you know, so we, I just kept doing it and it grew very organically, frankly, on its own. I mean, it's never had more than one other employee beyond me. And, uh, and we just, you know, we, we slog along every day and try and be a bit of a filter of all of the things that are happening, uh, much like you are in many ways, uh, all of the things that are happening uh, in the industry, all of the changes, all of the new products, all of the tools, et cetera, and say these are the ones that we think kind of matter. And occasionally these are the ones that we think are absolute crap and you should stay away from, although I tend to just only write about things that are at least good, if not great. Yeah, I stay away from the negative as well. I learned uh, when I was writing for magazines you open up the door for nothing but uh, discontent. <laughs> you know, you're going to get hassled if if you do anything that's negative. Absolutely. No, no. You, you, the, those those calls are the most painful one. Sometimes I admit, though, you know, I like... I think all of us that have been in the business for a while felt the pledge music thing might be happening before it actually happened, you know, the fall of the crowdfunding platform pledge music. Yeah. We certainly were hearing stories about people with late payments, et cetera, for, for months before. But I can, I'll speak for myself and say, you know, I've, I've thought, gosh, this is such a good platform, and I don't want to be the one that puts the nail in the coffin by saying they're stiffing people and then having an exodus for the door. And yet at the same time, now I look back and I feel bad that I didn't say, you know, I'm not the only one who, and I'm one voice out of many, but that I at least didn't raise my voice and say, there's something wrong here. Everybody should be careful. Um, so, you know, it, it plays both ways. It's not easy, but, uh, but I, you know, I'm, I, in my life and in my business, I try and actuate, accentuate rather the positive. Now, you mentioned something before about you built HypeBot in order to emphasize to your clients the importance of being online and social. So how important is that? Do you find that's still important? And, and I know getting butts in the seats is still the ultimate, but how important is that to you? How important is social and all of this now, all of this stuff, it's incredibly important. I mean, the, the truth is that, you know, the, in, when, I, when I look at many, many young bands often I'd like to go take a look at the House of Blues calendar, right? Because those are 1,000 to 2,000 seat venues around the country. And being, you know, an older guy, I don't know half of the bands that play the House of Blues, but they've got to be selling 1,000 or 2,000 seats or they wouldn't be playing the House of Blues. And then I go and I start to dig into these bands a little bit just to learn, if you will. And I find that many of those bands, the majority of those bands, have never had a record on the radio, or at least not, you know, commercial radio, big radio. Many of them are on independent labels or self-released or, you know, not on majors with major pushes. And most of them are able to sell tickets and have a career because they've developed good email lists, good social, you know, whatever variety of ways they use to capture and communicate with their fans. So frankly, I think it's everything. So yeah, you can still have a big radio hit and you can still, you know, a TV appearance might help your career or whatever those things are. But on all of those, you don't capture the fans. You don't know who those fans are. I mean, the guys from, let's say, what, what, what band we've worked with for years is Poco. Every once in a while, Rusty Young will say, gosh, if I had 10% of the people that bought, you know, the several million people or many millions of people that bought my record, 
uh, over the years, we could sell out every show if I had them on an email list. Well, you know, these younger bands are saying, you know, from day one, we're going to capture every fan and we're going to communicate with them. And, and that, you know, so to me, that's everything. Has it shifted a little bit? I mean, does Twitter more of a, you know, instantaneous way to occasionally blow off steam or throw out an announcement than it used to be? Does anybody care about a Tumblr blog unless you're Taylor Swift? I mean, it all shifts who it is and what 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 tools are working. But the truth is, it, you know, it, one way or the other, it matters. Do you weight one more than the other? For instance, uh, YouTube versus Instagram? I mean, right now, I can tell you that Instagram is an, is the easy, easy, is an easier place for most artists to build an audience fairly quickly. And I say that easier for a couple, in a couple of ways. One is because it's owned by Facebook and linked to Facebook, there's a lot of, it feels familiar and you can cross post, et cetera. Um, also because it's really easy to snap a picture of something or a quick live cell phone video, put a few words under it and you post, but also just because organically Instagram's still growing. So, but six months from now or three years from now, uh, you know, that may not be the case. So, you know, I, I say every, you've got to be on Facebook, even if, if you're, you don't think your audience is, you just have to be, you know, you've got to have a great website. You should be um, gathering your own email list uh, and you should be on Instagram. If you've got it in you, you should be on YouTube. If you're younger, you should play with TikTok. Uh, you know, it, it just depends. But, but those are the basics, in my opinion. Back to Hypebot for a second. I don't know if you've found it with Hypebot, and I'm a big fan, by the way, and I've always been. Thank you. Well, you've been very, you've been a valued contributor. Um, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, many people say that blogging is kind of over and it, or it has peaked. Have you found that readership has gone down? No, honestly, it hasn't. I mean, there was a dip there. <laughs> we were behind the curve with um, uh, being mobile-friendly for the blog, so there was a bit of a dip there. It's now grown, and it's growing pretty steadily, actually. Um, there are um, bands in town who, who bought the blogs earlier this year, um, is putting some resources into a des redesign and some other things that I think will do it. I mean, it, is it is it quite the same as it used to be? It's probably not, but, it, but, but I still think if you want to find a certain kind of information and then spend a little bit of time immersing yourself in it, I don't think there's a different format to do it. Now, having said that, are we playing, going to play more with video in the coming months? Yes, we are, and, and some other things. But, you know, ultimately there has to be a place to go, uh, you know, find content when you want it. Now, you know, podcasts like this are, are incredibly important, but they're a commitment of time. You know, it's, you, it's not just, gosh, I hear Instagram has a new feature where I can paste, um, post music to stories. What does that mean to me as a musician? Well, if you Google search or you go on Hypebot, you'll probably find the answer. And I, there's not another easy way to do that. So I don't, I don't think we're going away anytime soon. You mentioned the Bands in Town purchase. So how did that come about? Um, honestly, out of the blue, um, there's a gentleman named John Ostro who, gosh, used to blog a long time ago under the Mike Control. I think it was back when you and I first started, you know, separately. But um, he worked for Ariel Hyatt at Cyber PR for a while, and he's now the head of 
product, I believe is what it's called. No, sorry, head of revenue at Bansentown, which is a you know a pretty significant company. It's 80 people, multiple offices, et cetera, tens of millions of dollars in ad revenue a year. And uh, he, they wanted to expand their mission of being helpful to artists, uh, not just big artists, but helpful to artists. And um, he felt the way to do that was to bring um, Hypota Music Think Tank and and me, if you will, um, as a, a consultant or senior advisor on board. So I've known John a little bit for a long time, and one day I got a call, and and there it is. And it's it's really been wonderful. You know, you never know when you do these things. Like I've I've always worked for myself for 30 years, and now. I'm spending a part of most days, you know, a few hours a day here and there, uh, working with a larger team. And you don't know how, what that's going to feel like, but it really works because they really are committed to to helping artists. You know, they recon. You know, most of bands in town's core income comes from advertising and um, ticket purchase. So when you click on something and if you come comes from bands in town or, or some of the search engines or they have a deal with billboard for tour dates, et cetera, a little tiny fraction of that money goes to bands in town of that ticket purchase. Um, and they rejiggered their algorithm. Um, I think it's about a year and a half ago now. So that more than half of the searches, if you search for an artist, et cetera, you're also going to be fed um, developing artists, not just big name artists. So, you know, Taylor Swift might get you Ariana Grande or Keith Urban, depending, I suppose, on your on your taste. But it will also get you three or four bands you've never heard of, and quite a large percentage, a growing percentage of the tickets that they're selling are for, we'll just call them the developing artists, artists that um, they measure as having under ten, under a hundred thousand rather trackers. So trackers are people that follow them on bands in town. Um, and, uh, it's, 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 and so anyway, it's real on their part, the commitment to, to developing artists. And there are tools that they're releasing September 10th that, um, you know, take that mission even further. You mind if I talk about that for a second? Because I'm kind of ex- I'm kind of excited about it. Yeah, I was just going to go there actually, since you opened the door. Uh, so, Artist Toolkit, what is it and what it's about? Right. So, Bands of Town at its core is an art, a concert discovery platform, and you can you can upload your dates or you know enter them into Bands of Town if you're an artist for free, and then they spread them across the web. They have deals with Google and. Um, billboard in all kinds of places, about 130 million impressions a month. 50 million people actually have signed up on Bands in Town to uh, track artists. Uh, by tracking, I mean they basically follow them. They've said when this artist comes within, it, it varies, but let's just say roughly 50 miles of my home, I want to know about it. And that's whether it's a baby art band or a major band or whatever, I want to know about it. So there are 50 million people um, that have signed up to do that, and 130 million receive some kind of notification or discover concerts through uh, Bands in Town every month. If a, if somebody is following you currently on Bands in Town, tracking you is the term we use, uh, then you can message them so for free. So you can send out a blast that says, hey, I'm going on a tour. Hey, I have a new record or whatever for free. And they'll get an either they'll get an email or uh, a message on their phone, depending on how they've said they want it, uh, that that tells them that whatever it is you want for free. Um, As of uh, September 10th, those you, you will now be able to 
geotarget those trackers. So instead of just sending it to the whole country, you can send them to people within 50 miles of the city that you're playing, for example. Uh, and again, there's no, no cost to that. Um, they also are uh, being able to um, do something called event targeting, which uh, allows you to um, target the people that have RSVP'd or said, yeah, I'm coming to your shows. In previous shows, you can now send them a RSVP to an upcoming event. You can schedule ahead of time. And then all of this stuff, there are stats. And they've always had these analytics, like where are my fans, who's responding, and all the, all the typical analytics that you suggest. Now those analytics are in real time. They used to be updated once a day, but now they're literally, you can send out a blast and go, wow, look at the response I just got in Cleveland. Maybe I better add a second show or I, uh, whatever, whatever you may do. And there's some other interesting things. Another one I really love is they've been, they've been playing with this in beta, but it'll go public, and that is a little button that says Play My City. So when you search for the band on Bands in Town or you install their widget, which, again, is free, the widget puts – all those tour dates you entered on your website and does some other cool things. But anyway, there's a budget that says play button rather that says play my city, which means hey, you're not coming to Cleveland. I wish you'd come to Cleveland and I'm raising my hand and saying, please come to Cleveland. So they can track those play my city responses and go, you know, 300 people want me to come to Cleveland. I should go to Cleveland. They can use that data maybe and other data in the platform also hopefully to book a date or book a better date. So, it's all of the stuff that you hear about when you hear about Spotify for artists or whatever, but for touring uh, as opposed to, you know, for streaming or, or, or social media or something like that. It's very targeted towards touring. That's exciting. Lots of cool things. The neat thing about it is these are all the things that have been promised for being online for a long time that now finally can be accessed. And I know larger acts can access this through various services that they pay a lot of money for, but now this is finally down to the level of the indie artist. And I find that very attractive, very cool. Yeah, it is good. And, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, if you went on a live nation tour and Ticketmaster sold your, your, um, tickets for you, you could pay Ticketmaster, and I'm not picking on Ticketmaster, but any large ticketer, you could pay them to message your fans the next time you went on tour, but you had to pay them. You still have to pay them. And they're also not giving you their email addresses, which, you know, we're not either because that's not what we're authorized to do, but we're saying you want to message them, you message here, go ahead. We're not restricting it. You could, you could message them every day now, you know, that's, I don't think that's smart, but, um, you know, you know, on this platform. So yeah, you're right. And all of that stuff that, that everybody's been saying, Hey, look what you'll be able to do, not just capture your fan, but communicate with your fan, um, is finally coming true and it's becoming coming true for artists at all levels. I mean, you could have a hundred fans and, and you can have one fan and you can send, send them a message. Uh, but, uh, you know, the idea is obviously to help you grow a bigger fan base on that. Bruce, what are the challenges that you're facing in your business? At uh, Skyline, at the agency, um, I guess it's really that it's a very crowded marketplace, and how do you get the act? Once you've got the act, uh, let, let's just say we're trying to get 100 miles, going 100 miles an hour, that's a superstar, but you'd be perfectly happy at 50, <laughs> 50 miles an hour. Getting them from... 30 to 50 is, is about work and a little, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But getting them from one mile an hour to 10 or 20 miles an hour, it's tough. You know, it's, it, it's a lot of shows that nobody comes to. It's a lot of, 
you know, just it's a lot of hard work. Uh, there are not a lot of great managers that are willing to necessarily help an artist do that work uh, just because, you know, making 10 or 20% of an act that's making $100 a night is not much of a living. So, I, you know, it's exciting that the artist is able to do it, but the, but the artist has to be willing and uh, knowledgeable enough to do it. And, and that's, that's a lot to ask. So I guess it's, it's, you know, it's still a frustration always when you hear there's so much great music and how do you get more of it to the world? Not to superstar status, but just to a status where, you know, when they come through town, a few hundred people are there and if they play their cards right, maybe they're making a living and not having to, um, you know, sleep on their parents' couch. That's, that's the goal, you know, make a living making music. Making a living is a new success, as they would say. Yeah, and and I think you know, I've always thought it was that, but you know, the superstar machinery made you believe that it was something different. If there's anything, well, not anything, but one of the things that's exciting to me about you know the last decade or whatever is that that paradigm has started to shift. Some of it was because I guess people had no choice. They had to, you know, before the success of streaming, it was all doom and gloom, and if you were going to make a living as a musician, you had to just love the music and pray that it somehow worked out. Well, now, now we're past that, which is great, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big scary world out there. And, but I'm excited that people are happy perhaps at a more moderate level of success because that leaves more room for other, more other great music to be successful at a more, you know, level of success. I mean, people only have so many dollars if we could spread those dollars out over more artists, that's, I think that's good for art, good for music. Last question, Bruce. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or someone imparted to you? Um, a long time ago, uh, I had a, a mentor uh, said, be a student of the music business. It's funny, I, I, some, I, people used to ask me that question, I would stumble. Now I'm absolutely sure of the answer. Be a student of the music business. And what he meant at the time was, okay, so you love rock and roll, but I want you to read Billboard cover to cover. And if I ask you about, you know, at the time it was, let's say, a new age artist or whatever, I want you to just tell, be able to tell me a little bit. I don't need you to know every song. I, I just want you, to, I want you to be a student of the entire music business. And I've done that. And to some degree, that's what HypeBot is. It's, it's part of my intellectual exercise to bring a full circle of being a student in the music business. But that's really served me well. So if an artist, you know, I've never worked at a publishing company, but, you know, a few months ago, an artist came in and said, you know, I just need a little help with this. And, and I was able to point him in a direction and teach him what favored nations is so they could go in and get an equal deal to his cold co-writing partner or, uh, you know, a manager walks in the door and I'm able to have a, you know, Hey, what do you think about Skyline working with us? And I'm able to have a cogent conversation with them about uh, their artists because I've been paying attention to, I don't want to say every artist in the music business, but, but as many artists as I possibly can. And I really think that works, whether you're an artist or in the business, be a student of the business. And yeah, it could mean going to Berkeley and, you know, taking courses and all kinds of things. But beyond that, it's about reading and studying and just paying attention. You can find out more about Bruce's Skyline Artist Agency at skylineartists.com, all one word. And you should go and check out HypeBot at hypebot.com, H-Y-P-E-B-O-T, all one word, 
com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, and Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.